promoting, and this is more of a thing that's really leaders everywhere need to focus on. We need to promote a culture of trust on our teams so that people can learn to be vulnerable and then at the same time, learn to hold ourselves accountable. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, listeners. David Wright here, host of podcast Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business. Um, excited to say that this morning I am joined by Bashir Agbula. Bashir, great to have you on. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Bashir, tell me a little bit about your current role and where you're at right now. So I'm currently with uh, the Hospital for Special Surgery, HSS. We are an academic medical institution focused on orthopedics and allied diseases. I've been with the organization for about eight years now. I joined at the point when the organization was undergoing some significant transformation in, in its business. My role as a, as a vice president and chief technology officer, I oversee infrastructure and operations, play a key part in developing and executing technology strategy, helping to make technology a key differentiator for the organization. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you're from New York, you've definitely heard of HSS, right? I mean, you guys do amazing work to help our community. So yeah, it's amazing that you've been a part of that for, for eight years. That's impressive. Thank you. So we like to start out the podcast with a, a piece of actionable advice. What's one piece of actionable advice you could look to give our listeners today? So one of the things I've found valuable in my own development and my growth has been to always have what I describe as a learning agenda, meaning at any point in time, uh, you should have a, a small list of things that you're focusing your learnings on and you're consuming information about that topic or topics. So typically, I would say three to five items should be on your learning agenda at any point in time. And I've found that to be very helpful because otherwise it's being in a technology space in a top tier organization at the top of its field, you can get overwhelmed very quickly, very easily. And then you, you stop learning. 
So I found it very helpful to have a, a learning agenda and I go deep on those topics and then move on to something else. So that has allowed me to continue to stay relevant, to continue to grow professionally and to stay engaged, maintain my level of enthusiasm and interest in what I do. So I think having a learning agenda and then I'll, I'll just tag on one bonus to that, which is, you know, it's easy to get distracted by, you know, in a very busy world, you know, particularly when you live in a place like New York, when you work in a place like New York City, in an organization that's very busy, you can get distracted quite a bit and lose sight of what matters. So maintaining a sense of gratitude, I think is important as well. Making that uh, one of the core values that each and every one of us uh, subscribe to, I think it's important. So you keep learning and be grateful for what you have, even as you aspire for more because it's easy to lose sight of what you already have as you chase uh, your ambitions. So that, that would be my advice. That's such beautiful advice. And that resonates with me so much. In about six to eight months ago, we kind of reframed our, our vision and mission really to be of service in the world, right? Really come as opposed from, to coming from a place of how am I going to get mine, right? Just how can I serve my family, my friends, my community? the more that I get out of myself, the more that I can be grateful. And I think that, David, I'll just add, I think that's something that for many of us professionals, we come to that much later in life. But I would advise that the earlier you come to those realizations and you start making those pivot, to use that overused word, pivoting, the earlier we do that in life, the better. You know, I, I would refer your listeners to Clayton M. Christensen's um, great book, how would you measure your life? And there's, there's a TED talk out there by the late professor as well on that topic. So it's important that we make those conscious deliberations earlier on in life than much later when you know, you're not so impactful. So congratulate you on that. Yeah, I had to go through a, a life-changing event you know, a number of years back in order to come to that mindset. And I, I do wish I would have gotten there a little earlier, but the universe kind of guided me on the path that I'm on today. And, you know, I have, a, I have a beautiful life today, so I'm very grateful. I actually do a daily gratitude list. That's how I hold myself accountable. I, anyway, great advice. Let's talk a little bit about your personal backstory. Where did you start out and how did you get to where you are today? So I'm originally from Nigeria. I grew up in, I was born in Nigeria. I went to, I began my professional career in Nigeria as well. I schooled school there. I had my bachelor's degree in computer science with economics, and then I went on to study computer science at the master's degree level. I had the opportunity, after working in Nigeria for a few years, I had the opportunity to be employed by a company based in New Jersey that facilitated my uh, relocation to the United States. I worked in consulting with that company for a short while, uh, starting out in, with one of their clients on, on Wall Street. From there, the consulting assignments took me into healthcare with a Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And from there, I transitioned to being a full-time hire at, um, at MSKCC, a great organization, one of the top cancer care organizations in the, in the nation, if not in the world, and sort of stayed there for a long stint while I was there, you know, progressively promoted with, uh, into larger and larger roles in the infrastructure and uh, operations or technical resources um, division of, of IT, of information systems, had the benefit of more education and professional growth while I was there, you know, added to my professional certifications, had my MBA while I was there, 
I took advantage of the numerous opportunities that that organization provided in terms of taking on bigger scope of responsibilities in terms of education, training, leadership development programs, internally delivered uh, professional development curriculum. I consumed all of those and I learned quite a bit from people I interacted with, from people I encountered both in and outside of the organization. And that journey eventually led me to HSS, where I have been for a while now. And again, I've continued that growth trajectory, both in terms of my learnings, my development, and my, hopefully, my impact and, and contribution to what we do. It's funny, my, my wife immigrated to the United States from Latvia when she was five, and she was talking about how important learning was to them, you know, that that was their key to a, a bright future. And it just, it really resonates with me. What was one of the most important things that you learned along that journey? So there are many things I learned. So one, one of the, well, but you asked for one of the most important ones. It's um, something that I wish I had known earlier. It seems very simple, actually, but it's the fact that I needed to be comfortable with discomfort. So, so I've made it one of the teaching principles that I teach when I you know, mentor up-and-coming professionals and, and young folks. It's getting comfortable with discomfort. And so what that means really is there are many things you need to do, and I'm talking about ethical, important things you need to do. I'm not talking about things that you shouldn't do. You know, I'm talking about things you need to do that many of us, all of us, at some point or the other, feel uncomfortable doing. So for me, part of that would be having a conversation as we're having right now, you know, public speaking. It uh, could be having a difficult conversation with a family member, with a subordinate, with, uh, with someone that you work with, with uh, you know, having critical, crucial conversations that might be uncomfortable for all concerned. Going out of your comfort zone to learn something new and being, being vulnerable and you know, letting your gut down. So for a while, I struggled with that. And I thought the way to address that was to get rid of the feeling of discomfort. I thought that you know, when I would see people that seemed successful at doing those things that I struggled to do, I thought perhaps they didn't feel the discomfort. I thought perhaps they, they were just braver, more confident. And what I needed to do was have more confidence and you know, more courage. It took a while, but I, eventually I figured out that I was fighting the wrong battles. You know, rather than trying to get rid of that feeling of discomfort when you step on the stage to, to give that talk or to have that tough conversation you need to have with a significant person in your life or with someone you work with, it's not about not feeling uncomfortable. It's about recognizing the discomfort and knowing that it's there and actually using it as some sort of a fuel to, to do what you need to do. I'm going to have that conversation with you. I'm going to step up, you know, go get introduced to that person I want to network with at the networking event that, you know, this high ranking professional executive at some company that I'm, you know, interested in. I'm going to walk up to that person despite the, you know, the knots in my stomach. And so my advice, my, the, what I've learned that I wish I knew much, much earlier, but I'm glad I still learned so years ago, is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
So, and, and, and I say to people, imagine if you're going to get a vaccine of sort, flu vaccine or any vaccine, the, the wrong battle would be trying to not feel the pinch of the needle. You're going to feel the pinch. could be a slight pinch, but you're going to feel it. So rather than focusing on not feeling the pinch, focus on the benefits you're going to derive from getting that shot. You know, so in that case, it's protection from whatever, you know, you're getting the vaccine for. So get comfortable with discomfort. And when you assume that, you would notice very quickly that that discomfort actually dissipates fairly quickly. So if you're concerned about getting on the stage to talk, for the first several seconds, one minute, you're going to feel uncomfortable. And it could be almost a paralyzing fear at, in, in some cases, depending on the audience and what's at stake. But if you recognize that it's temporary, it's a fleeting experience and it's going to go away, you're going to move forward and do what you need to do. And soon enough, that feeling would go. So if it's having a, a difficult conversation with someone you should have it with, you know, a significant person in your life, your boss, a subordinate that you, you know, you're having some challenges with, go ahead, have that conversation, recognizing that that feeling of discomfort you're having right now is only temporary. It will go away. And what matters more is the aim that you're, the, the outcome you're trying to achieve. So that was some, so that was a transformational, as simple as it is, for me, it was a really transformational self-discovery that allowed me to do the things that don't come naturally to me. Many of the things I do today for which, you know, I get compliments are things that don't come to me naturally, but I've gotten comfortable with doing them. And now they seem, you know, comfortable to do. I love that level of vulnerability. I tell the same thing to some of the folks that I mentor when I walk on stage or when I'm approaching an executive like that. Of course, I feel discomfort or fear. It, for me, it's, it's a little, you know, scary. But I can also be brave and have the courage to walk through it. And like you said, focus on the outcome and also focus on that we're all just people. That person sitting across from me or, or those folks in the crowd, you know, they have the same human experience that I do. And they want you to succeed. And more, more often than not, that executive actually would probably appreciate you approaching them. And many people are, are willing to help a lot more than we realize if only we would reach out to them and allow ourselves to be vulnerable in asking for, for that assistance. Before we get into your vision for HSS, and I want to talk about you know, some of your initiatives, the technology, you know, I really liked what you had to say about the learning agenda and just quickly wanted to understand when you're putting that together, what are the mediums you typically consume, content? Are there any favorite books or blogs you've been reading lately? Tell me a little bit about that. I study broadly books, podcasts, articles. I subscribe to a ton of uh, articles and industry articles, publication, you know, so the, the business school publications, I regularly consume those. Some recommendations I have, depending on where I'm at, uh, so, so right now I'll tell you where I'm at. One thing I have on my learning agenda right now, you know, as I think about the future, you know, professionally speaking, given where I'm at in my career, in terms of and, and in terms of outlook, so I'm thinking, okay, I need to learn a little bit more about wealth management, and not because I've made the kind of money I would like to make, but you got to start somewhere. So I'm, I'm learning more now about. I said I need to be smart about managing money because that's what the wealthy in society figured out um, much more than the rest of us. 
they know how to manage their money or they've able to hire people to help them manage their money. So I'm listening to a podcast, a really great podcast on wealth management by Andrew Chen. It's called the Hack Your Wealth podcast. Um, so it's really, I highly recommend um, podcast by Andrew, Andrew Chen. So you can find it on iTunes or other platforms. One other thing I've had on my agenda for a while, and I've been at this for a few years now, is on biohacking. You know, I'm sort of a, an enthusiast of biohacking. I consume a lot of content about how do you improve your health, you know, all dimensions of your health as a person. And so one of the podcasts that I find most helpful in that area is Dave Asprey's The Human Upgrade. It used to be called the Bulletproof Podcast. Now he calls, he calls it, he just rebranded it as The Human Upgrade by Dave Asprey. Excellent podcast. There are a few other ones out there. On the professional side, the number of healthcare podcasts that I listen to, in terms of books right now, I'm, I'm, I'm on Audible because I do Audible quite a bit now because I take the train into work. So it's just easier for me to listen while I'm in transit. So I listen to books mostly on Audible and I listen to podcasts. The one book that I'm, really, I'm listening to right now is Range by David Epstein. And it talks about just, just a book that talks about learning and developing expertise and how you know expertise is developed and challenging some of the understandings we have in terms of how people become good at what they do so I'm, i find that very very interesting but probably my best book recommendation the book one book that i found most intriguing you know all the business books that i've read would be uh, i think uh, the influencer the power to change anything by Kelly Patterson and, and a few other folks. They have a new edition out. I think the, the subtitle to the new edition is something like uh, the, the Science of Change. So Influence by the Science of Change, that's a new edition. But the edition that I, the original edition that I read, uh, which I really found very interesting and very tra transformative was uh, Influence the Power to Change Anything. It's a really excellent book. It's about change because I like to think of what I do has been change management, being a change agent, right? That's what I do. Uh, what I do in my role as a technology leader is to use technology to implement change, to influence change, you know, business change, help my organization to get to where it needs to get to. And much of what we do there involves changing attitudes, encouraging adoption, changing how we do business. So that book talks about change, both personal change, professional change, societal change. So I think um, it's a good book to add to your to your learning. Influence and change is a good topic to add to your learning, and that book is a really good to use. I'm literally adding it to my uh, my repertoire here. I do uh, same thing: Audible when I'm on the train, and/or I I got a Kindle because I sometimes I like to read as well and listen to you know classical music. I just had Andy Ladato on a week or two ago, and uh, he just wrote a book, Fostering Innovation. It talks about change a little bit and, and how to build an amazing IT team. That's a good one to check out. And, you know, I love what you said about change because, you know, particularly when we work with, you know, large health systems or banks or really any industry, a huge part of what we do is, is organizational change management. Enrolling the various stakeholders, especially when you get into organizations with 10, 15, 20,000 people, really having your arms around them from a cultural standpoint, from a 
organizational standpoint is so, so crucial. So I'm going to check out that book for sure. Let's talk a little bit about HSS. So what's your vision for the organization? So the so HSS, for, for those who might not be familiar with us, we're ranked number one in the nation and actually in the world in orthopedics. That's a tough spot to be in. We are in the New York City area and in the tri-state area, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Florida, but we cater to an international audience. We have people come from all over the world. And when you occupy the top slot in a particular vertical, and you are in a marketplace like we are in the New York metro area with some really great healthcare institutions all around you, it's tough to be number one and to stay number one. You know, we're, we're ranked number one for the 12th year running now by U.S. News and World Report. So that's a tough position to be in and to, to maintain that leadership consecutively for, for that number of years, only nationally uh, and then also more recently that measured globally. To do that, we, those of us in non-clinical roles, because I'm, I'm not a clinician, those of us in non-clinical roles, we nonetheless have a big role to play in enabling the organization to deliver on its mission of removing your pain and giving you mobility. I mean, literally, when you read patient letters, when you listen to patient letters, people that have been treated by HSS, your eyes will tear up just seeing how grateful people are for the work that's been done to, you know, give them mobility, pain-free mobility to be able to recover their quality of life that they, they thought was lost for good. So those of us in, in roles such as technology, we recognize the impact that we can have in making sure that the clinicians and everybody else in the organization, in operations, are able to do what's needed to treat the whole person that, that comes to HSS. So whether it's in laying out the technology infrastructure or uh, in enabling the rollout of new digital tools, because again, everybody's talking about digital transformation these days, and HSS is no different in that respect. So enabling the digital transformation of our, of our business in different ways and making sure that clinicians and people in business operations have everything they need, making it as frictionless as we can, such that focus is on patient care and not on anything else that would detract from being able to really treat those, those people that come to us. So I see my role, my team and everyone else that we work together with in IT, we see our roles as really not just enablers of the mission of the organization with technology, but we are also constantly thinking, how can we make technology a strategic differentiator for the organization? Because we, we are in a very competitive market space. People have choices in this area, you know, in the New York metro area. People have tons of choices. For them to keep coming back, we really need to differentiate our business. And so our goal is to make sure that technology helps with that differentiation. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Leveraging technology to optimize that patient experience. I mean, that's a, a story that we're telling daily. So it's, it's amazing that you guys are all over that. I mean, and, and congratulations about the, the ranking. My mom is actually scheduled for a, a shoulder surgery at HSS. My mother-in-law works at New York Presbyterian, and she set my mom up at HSS because of the level of, of expertise that you guys bring to the table. So, so what are some of the key initiatives that you guys are focused on right now? 
one of the things we're focusing on this year is sort of mapping out uh, core infrastructure, cloud migration. A lot of focus on cloud has been on consuming services that are available in the cloud from a business application perspective. You know, we actually have most of our applications already in the cloud. And then we also started uh, more thoughtfully a few years ago that new capabilities will be built in the cloud. So anytime we're building a new business capability, for example, when our analytics team were putting together their analytics strategy, that was all built around the cloud. So we decided that any new net new capabilities in the organization was best to serve just launching that in the cloud. And that's worked out well for us. So now, next step to that is looking at core infrastructure and saying, okay, what can we put in the cloud? What's the benefit? What's the business value to us of putting more of our core infrastructure in the cloud? So, so this year, that's one of the initiatives that my team's working on, assessing that and making a determination for how we're going to begin to move some of our core infrastructure into the cloud. After you know, we spent the last few years transforming, really transforming the infrastructure, that was key to what we needed to do over the last few years. Now, the next phase for us is, okay, now we have very resilient, high-tech core infrastructure. The next step for us is, can we move those into the cloud? So that's one thing we're doing. In terms of operations also, we're looking at AI operations, at you know, IT operations back, you know, backed with artificial intelligence. There are a new breed of technologies that's come out over the last three to four years that really are transforming IT operations. You know, they make you know, managing your infrastructure a lot better and easier and more predictive. Uh, they make your service management experience get a lot better. So those, some of those same technologies that have been used to improve performance in the business areas, you know, you, you, robotic process automation has been, is widely deployed now in many areas of business. In healthcare, one, one area is in revenue cycle management, because that's one area where there's just great opportunity to improve performance by using RPA. And then on top of that, you know, AI ops is now also making its way into core technology infrastructure management. So we're looking at things like that as a way of maturing uh, technology practice. I mean, well, it's great that you have the majority of your business applications in the cloud because that gives you the opportunity to plug those disruptive technologies in and, and create that interoperability and kind of optimize that workflow. So kudos. So that said, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing as an organization today? So the <laughs> staffing is one. <laughs> In the cloud area, it's really difficult to find competent cloud engineers. So staffing is one. In the cybersecurity area, again, in the data analytics, those three verticals are there. They are really difficult to find good talent. And then on top of that is, you know, the the disruption caused by the so-called great resignation. I like to brand rather as the great shuffle because in some ways it's a shuffle because. Not everybody is retiring, and, and we do know that some people are quitting the workforce, but a lot of it is just shuffling. People are moving from one employer to the other for a variety of reasons. People moving out of the New York metro area, and people coming into the New York metro area, maybe to, to a lesser degree. So it's more of a shuffle. Uh, so we have that challenge with resources and the perennial challenges of you know being able to do more with what you have. And then the in the healthcare space, in the last two or three years, we wrote an article about this recently. We've had an infusion of money into digital health, into health tech. 
And so we have many upstarts in that space that are creating digital products, you know, digital enabled care models that are threatening to disrupt many of the legacy healthcare models that we have and healthcare institutions. Now, it's great and I love that because that's forcing everybody to digitally reinvent themselves. Society will benefit from that. In the meantime, it's a disruption because now you have, you know, many, 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 and, and, the, and the pandemic also helped with that, you know, because adoption, things that probably wouldn't have gotten as much adoption as they've had, where it really launched, you know, a couple of nights ago, I was at um, an event in New York City organized by a company in the health tech space where they brought investors and uh, startup leaders in the health tech space together for just a, a small networking opportunity. And many of them, many of the companies that I saw there were actually found, uh, you know, started during the pandemic, many of the health tech companies. So because the pandemic really created an opportunity for them to launch and to gain traction a lot quicker than they would have done if this was 2018. So I think that's a challenge that many legacy healthcare providers are seeing, but I think it's a great challenge for the industry as a whole, for the healthcare industry as a whole, and for, for humanity, because it's going to make healthcare better. A hundred percent. I mean, we're excited about it and we're at the tip of the spear, right? Historically, we've worked in healthcare, but now I would say almost 75% of our engagements are healthcare because of those reasons. And coupled with the, the fact that it's hard to find talent, it kind of benefits us. So one of the things I wanted to ask, I mean, you gave some great advice at the beginning of the podcast, as it pertains to the team that you manage and you know your IT staff, what are some of the best practices that you follow, that you and your team follow? Yeah, so, so some of it, I, I would say one of the things that we've learned from working during the pandemic was we can actually do a lot better uh, if we figure out how to collaborate better. You know, healthcare's typically been usually a, a team spot. You know, if, you, if you've witnessed a procedure in, in an OR, you know, it, it's a team spot, carefully choreographed team spot. I mean, that's that's how you would like it to be if you're the person on the operating table. You would not want it any other way. And that sort of resonates downwards throughout the organization. But in IT, we also learned to do that a lot better during the pandemic because just given some of the challenges of not being co-located as we were previously, because now some teams had to go off-site and some teams remained on-site, having to work together, we actually became more collaborative because we began to use more of the tools that were available to us previously, but which we did not use. So, so I think that's one of the lessons, uh, one of the best practices that we've now adopted, you know, just taking advantage of the collaboration tools that we have to actually improve service delivery to our organization. And the other thing I would say is really being, promoting a culture of transparency and trust on teams, which would allow people to be open and vulnerable in discussing issues and in identifying issues. Because one of the things that causes dysfunction on a team is a lack of trust. So if I don't trust that by admitting that I don't know something, you know, I, if I say I don't know how to do something or that there's a problem somewhere, it's going to make them look down on me or question my professional credentials, then that's a problem. And that eventually leads to dysfunction. So promoting, and this is more of a thing that's really um, every, leaders everywhere need to focus on. We need to promote a culture of trust on our teams 
so that people can learn to be vulnerable and then at the same time learn to hold ourselves accountable you know so when i come at you david for not delivering on something that you had committed to deliver on by yesterday you would know where i'm coming from i'm not doing that in a you know adversarial manner i'm just asking as a team member david you promised to have this to us you know today so we can do something else so we don't have it what's going on you know how can we help you so just promoting that i think promoting that kind of a culture as hard as it can be to do is important it, it makes us uh, work a lot more efficiently and more, much more successfully than if we operated in an environment that's devoid of trust and where everybody's sort of like doing cya all the time and then a lot gets missed and hidden and it's just not good for your organization so i think those are probably some of the lessons and practices that we've developed over time uh, and i would agree i mean especially right now with the issues with talent and it i think creating a a great culture for an organization really even outside it and in, in any department i think is is crucial to get talent and then and keep talent we typically ask about disruptive technologies i know that you know, we had talked about enterprise blockchain. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about your thoughts surrounding that? So this is one of those um, topics that have been threatening disruption for a while, but haven't exactly disrupted industry just yet. So I still believe firmly that there's a great deal of promise in enterprise blockchains. And again, not to be confused with crypto and you know Bitcoin, because people get those mixed up sometimes. So the enterprise blockchains have applicability in industries and, and particularly in healthcare. And I'm, I'm a member of the HIMSS Healthcare Blockchain Task Force, you know, which, whose goal is to help develop some of the learnings and understandings around the use of blockchain in healthcare and eventual adoption and, and possibly influence policy as those get developed. There isn't a ton out there yet in terms of practical applications in production. There are few, but there are a lot of efforts efforts going. There's a lot of effort going on in many areas. So some, some of the areas that we've looked at is solving the interoperability problem. That's a perennial turn in our, in our sites in healthcare, being able to make sure that data is available at point of care across the, you know, that, so that providers can have the long, longitudinal view of a patient irrespective of where they go in the united states we're notoriously backward in that compared to some of the other advanced economies in terms of interoperability so blockchains hold some uh, promise there uh, as as in revenue cycle management as well and that's why a few years ago you saw a few organizations came together i think optum humana and a few other big names came together to do some work around the use of blockchain, I think, in the area of credentialing, that's another one, which is a difficult one because practitioners have to be credentialed. And in, we have this system in the United States where it's not just do it once in one place and it's done everywhere. You see, you know, different states have different requirements. One thing that blockchain has been looked at in the area of um, solving the problem with the drug counterfeiting. And so there are many, many, many applications. And today there are many projects working on solving problems using blockchain technologies. Uh, many, again, as I said before, many of them, few of them are in production, very few. But over time, we will see them mature, we'll see adoption. So 
I wouldn't say it's disrupting anything just yet, but the potential to do so remains real. Again, identity management is another key focus area for blockchain in, in the enterprise. Got it. Yeah. And I mean, we like to ask about where you see the healthcare industry going in the future and, and or what you think are the biggest opportunities for providers other than blockchain. Any other you know, thoughts on, on that? Yeah. So I think um, digitally enabled care, as vague as that might sound, is really the future. Uh, digitally enabled care, which allows us to bring care, to meet people's care needs at where they are. Changing the model, you know, if you, for those who grew up, older generation who grew up in the United States and maybe in, in some of the Western societies where the physician will visit you at home to take care of you, that, that was the model they used maybe 100 years ago. You know, a doctor would make house visits and take care of you at home. And then we went to this centralized model where you had to go to the physician, you had to go to a big hospital, you had to go, you know. So with technology, we're seeing an opportunity to take care to people where they are. So as I mentioned before, many upstarts, many startups are coming up in creating the technology and legacy providers are also changing and also creating digitally enabled care models. The policies and payment models are trying to catch up to make sure that there's uh, the reimbursements available for those kind of uh, care, care delivery models. So I think using technology to improve care and then also probably most importantly, being able to care for the whole person and focusing on wellness above treating illness, I think it's a big shift because now with the wearable technologies that we have and with the potential for improved access to care, I have a smartwatch, I have a smartphone. Some of my vitals are being captured constantly. There are a number of wearables that I can put on to keep track of some conditions that I might have. That's allowing proactive care. You know, we can, we can then say, you know what, this person, given what the kind of data we're measuring and we're seeing from all the wearables that they have, have a potential for blah, 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 blah. And then here's what we can do. It's really, I think the future is great. The marriage of technology and healthcare, it's really great future for us as consumers of healthcare. And at the same time, it can help us address the inequalities that exist in access to care. Now, we have to be careful because technology is not equally accessible just yet. But if we address the digital gap while at it, we can also use this to sort of smoothen out some of the inequalities that exist today in, in our society as far as access to care and, and well-being is concerned. So those are some of my thoughts on that. I agree with all that wholeheartedly. I don't even have anything else to add. So we're almost complete here. I just Our last question is, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? There's a line that I heard years ago. I forgot who said that line, but I'm sure it's somebody out there said. He said, don't sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff. So I'm not sure who said it. It sounds glib, but I think really it's important that we don't overthink much of what we're doing right now and over worry. Because as a young professional, you know, you're ambitious. You want to get ahead. You want to get stuff done. It's really easy to get consumed by what you're trying to do, you know, particularly when you're in a, in a highly competitive market space. And I, would, I would address minority candidates, for example, in, in the professions as well. There's a great deal of pressure on you to do certain things, to do it in a certain way. And 
to succeed and you, you feel so much pressure. And that can be all consuming. And that can have impacts in way, on your life in ways that you don't anticipate or necessarily recognize. So it's good to just try to stay grounded and to have a way to always step back and do some self-assessment, self-reflection. And always ask yourself, uh, there's these three questions that I ask people to ask themselves is, what do I want? Why do I want it? And what am I willing to do for it? So at every point in time, recognizing that what we want can always change from time to time and should change from time to time. Priorities do change, they evolve. But uh, what do you want? Why do you want it? Why is it important to you? And what are you willing to do for it? If you're able to ask those questions, sometimes you might find out that what you want, and even with the understanding of why you want it, you're not willing to pay the price that you have to pay for that job. So sometimes maybe it's a, job, a new job, a promotion that requires you to go to the other end of the country. Are you willing to do that? Is it that important enough for you to get that next level job that you're going to disrupt your family life where you're at? You know, are you going to take this job now that's going to cut down on the time you're going to be able to spend with your kids and your spouse? Is it worth it to you? This job requires a certain certification or educational level. Are you willing to go back to school to get that? Is it important? So know what you want, why you want it, and what are you willing to do for it? It might not be worth the price, or it could very well be worth it. So I, I think just having that clarity is important. I love that. I feel like you were talking to me in that moment. So I appreciate the advice. Thank you. Bashir, it's been such a pleasure to have you on today. Any, uh, any closing thoughts or anything you want to leave us with? I would say let's keep learning, let's keep growing, and let's keep making an impact. Again, remember, how would you measure your life? Like Clay Christensen said, we should always think about what impact we're making on those around us. And all of us can make impacts. And I tell the, I tell the, uh, the young college uh, students, I said, you can impact the kids in high school and kids in elementary school. You can absolutely impact them. You can be role models to them. So we should always think. What impact am I making? You don't have to be a Warren Buffett to be impactful. Each and every one of us can make impacts in whatever small sphere that we have access to. So let's be impactful in a good way. I love that. Bashir, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you being on. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.